trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, fellow wrong thinker, and welcome to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I hope you'll visit my sponsor links, which you'll find in my show notes, at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Just give them a click, tell them thanks, and let them know that their message is reaching your ears. All right, there's a lot to cover today, and I'm going to start with what seems like kind of a heavy topic, but I'm going to try to do this in the most constructive way that I can. And and maybe this is just therapy, okay? Maybe this is me working out some issues, you know, and, and you're along for the ride, but I can't be the only person who is um, trying to adjust to, to the understanding that, uh, you know, the whole idea that, you know, if things can just get back to normal, if we just get everybody vaccinated, we can get back to normal. If we can just get this virus under control, we can get back to normal. I'm beginning to to understand that normal, or at least what was normal prior to, say, March of 2020, I don't think it's coming back. And that may sound very dire to some people. It's not my intent to, yeah, we're... We're pretty well doomed. No, it's, I think that just because things change, and it took me my whole lifetime to learn this, but change is inevitable. But we've had it good for a very long time. So the idea of, you know, things changing and and uh, things being different and uncomfortable. Look, I, I totally get why people struggle with that. Like I say, I've, I've lived my life far too much in the comfort zone. It's only in probably the last 15 years that I've really started to embrace the idea that it's going to change. Circumstances will change. You're going to be dealt, you know, challenges that you maybe didn't anticipate. And it's never the stuff you're worrying about either. That's the kicker. A friend of mine whose wife passed away from, from cancer here a few years ago um, was telling me there's, there's great wisdom in the idea that the things you spend your time worrying about aren't the things that are going to cause you actual hardship and stress. Most of that stress is just self-imposed. It's the stuff that you have absolutely no idea is just around the corner. The stuff that blindsides you at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday, that's what's going to get you. And that's kind of how it was with his wife's diagnosis of, uh, of a terminal illness. Boom, out of the blue, everything changes. So I'm not trying to minimize this. I understand it's hard for everybody, but it's tough to contemplate getting used to things being different than before. I don't know if you are a fan of or if you're even aware of. There's a there's a a television series out there called The Chosen, which uh, illustrates and tells the story of the New Testament. Basically, it's it's following Jesus as he's calling his disciples and the, the interactions that they have. And this is very different from a lot of the, the different uh, movies and films and, and, and series, you know, educational series about the Bible that you may have seen before in the sense that the, the characters portrayed in The Chosen 
are very fallible. They're very human. And yet, I've heard more people say, and I've actually felt this myself, there's something very um, empowering about seeing that. I don't know what it is. It, it's, it just it, it makes it more real because you realize, you know what? They didn't all walk around with their hands together like in an attitude of prayer and angelic harps, you know, mysteriously playing somewhere in the distance everywhere they went. No. They had some real difficulties. And when Jesus called those individuals, come follow me, they had no idea how much their lives were going to change. Well, there is a point where one of them says, you know, um, this is really different, you know, or things are, things are, are, are way different than I thought they would be. I'm paraphrasing. But the answer that Jesus gives him is get used to different. And I'm not trying to make this into necessarily a religious, you know, conversation, but I think that's probably good advice for all of us in in whatever areas of life we're experiencing this change. And right now, there's a lot of places where this is changing. I'm going to include in the show notes a speech that was given to the Ron Paul Institute summer uh, student seminar this summer. Um, I'm sorry, it was given uh, actually earlier this month. So at the end of summer, September 3rd, this was given by James George Jatras. And it's titled, It's Later Than You Think. Now, I'm going to share just a couple of excerpts from his remarks, but it's a, it's a fairly lengthy address, but man, he has some great advice. Keeping in mind, he's speaking to young people. And he's, and he's kind of uh, agonizing over it. He says, you know, I accepted this invitation to speak with great trepidation, and he gives him three reasons why. He says, the first is, of course, both for self-protection in an increasingly unfree country and my growing sense that nothing I or anyone else can say is going to make much of a difference in averting the horrors I believe are coming our way. In fact, he says, I actually had ceased my public writing and speaking life such as it was, but I reluctantly have made an exception to that less than momentous recusal but he says, I plan to resume it at the end of today. In other words, I came out of retirement, essentially, to speak to you, but I'm going right back in as soon as I'm done. Secondly, he says to these young people, I was loath to contaminate your naturally ebullient optimism of youth with my crotchety boomer pessimism. And he has a point here. He says, at your age, you should feel that the world is, if not quite your oyster, at least pregnant with possibilities. How do I tell you that in the layman's terms, your lives, uh, at least in the near future, will probably suck? But there's hope. And he says, I'll return to that. Third, he says, I thought it would be derelict of me not to provide you with some sage, old, gray-beard advice of a practical nature. In other words, if I were in your shoes today, what would I do specifically to try to make a positive contribution to the world around me? How to best serve God and my neighbor to make my country and world a better place and to do it in relative safety, in a modest degree of economic sustainability, maybe even comfort, to marry, start a family, to see your offspring rise in peace and prosperity. Now he says, see, that's, that last is the most daunting because the world has changed so much in such a short time. And of course, that pace of change is accelerating. He says, back in the olden days, uh, in my case, he says, back in the late 1970s when I entered government service, that was actually an honorable thing to do. But he says, that's, that's pretty rare these days. And he walks through, you know, his life history and, and his work history. 
and and describes how he came to see the truth of what was happening with our government as well as with other governments. And I want to I'm going to skip over a lot of that. He has some very good historical perspective. But he talks about how the laws and the Constitution have come to be violated on such a regular basis that no one even really calls it out, at least no one who should be calling it out. That would mean people in power. That would mean people in the media. You know, the watchdogs have become lapdogs, and that's pretty much where they're comfortable. But he says what's happening is happening with astonishing speed. It's difficult to look back on the events of 2020 and to anticipate worse to come without some foreboding that the world is nearing some sort of crescendo. And he says, I don't know, maybe this is going to be similar to earlier ones, the collapse of the Western or the Western Roman Empire, the Islamic conquest of the Eastern Empire, the East-West Great Schism and the Crusades. How about the neo-pagan humanism of the Renaissance or the religious strife of the Reformation? The misnamed Enlightenment with its malign offspring revolution and progress, the world wars, the totalitarians of the modern era. But he says, with each seeming turn of the wheel, with each ebb and flow between disorder and partial restabilization, the net linear advance of Gnosticism is undeniable. He talks about the Great Reset. And he talks about, you know, the impact that is being had by the, the response to this virus. And, I, and I'm going to skip through most of this because, again, this he gets into a lot of details. If you're looking for some good reading this weekend, I think you'll really like sitting down and enjoying what James George Jatras has to say. When we come back from the break, though, I want to share with you three specific things that he advises the young people in his audience to consider doing. Three practical tasks that they can undertake to help make the world a better place. And the beauty of what he's suggesting is this is the kind of stuff that won't just work for young people, it'll work for any of us. And I thought it was refreshing. Look, I'm coming to terms with the idea that, hey, maybe things have changed in such a way we are not going to see a return to normal. We're going to have to get used to things being different. I'm okay with that. But I also want to make the best of the situation. I want to have the the best impact that I can have, regardless of the circumstances. So we'll come back with James George Jatras's recommendations, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article from James George Jatras. A very unflinching look at how it's later than we think, but there are still some very practical things that we can do. And I think the key message here is, yeah, things are changing, and, and they're changing at an almost frightening pace for a lot of us, but, you know, it's it's Okay. This has happened before. People have survived. We've got to be resilient enough and flexible enough to make the best of those changes and not just wallow in, oh, it didn't go the way I hoped that it would. Before I go back to his article, I want to take just a moment here to talk about lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my sponsors, and and it's it benefits me when you do business with them 
because they are helping to support me being on the air. They're helping to keep the wolf away from the door. But I love that I have teamed up with them because they are offering you something that could be very, very useful. Whether times are good or whether times are bad, having a good supply of food storage with a 25-year shelf life, just add water, uh, lots of great different entrees to choose from. Uh, they can even accommodate uh, you know people who can't handle gluten, so a lot of gluten-free choices. Please go to the link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on Life-Saving Food. And if you find something that works for your family, whether it's a complete food storage package, whether it's just a few additional items to bolster your existing supply, please use the coupon code HIDE at checkout for a 10% discount. It'll do you good. You'll sleep better at night. It will benefit me and that my sponsor will be saying, hey, Brian, people are responding to this message. I guess it's, it's, it's a win-win situation. And it looks like it's becoming, you know, more necessary as time goes on. All right. So the three practical things recommended by James George Jatras when he was speaking to an audience of students at the Ron Paul Institute Student Seminar earlier this month. He says, I want to give you, you know, some some advice. And, and he's got some experience to draw from. But he says, uh, I For what it's worth, I put before you three practical tasks for your consideration. And and he does this with the understanding. For most of us, our ability to impact the big picture regarding all the crazy stuff going on is is probably quite slim or quite small, and, and that's okay. He says even our ability to discern the signs of the times in an era of pervasive Gnostic deceit abetted by technologies unimaginable just a few years ago, is limited. But here's what he suggests we do. He says, firstly, be vigilant against deception. In a day when assuredly evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, admittedly, that's a tough one, given the, ever, given the ever-present lying that surrounds us and the suppression of dissent. Try to sift truth from falsehood, but he says, don't become obsessed. Because in many cases, you won't be able to be sure anyway. Does that sound familiar? I think I was complaining about this yesterday on the show. I'm looking for truth all the time. I'm sifting all the time. But I struggle sometimes. Who do I believe? Who can be trusted? So, he says, focus most on what's proximate to you and on the people most important to you. It sounds terrible, I know, because everyone who's denoted as an expert or an authority isn't necessarily unreliable, but that's a good starting assumption. In other words, be skeptical about everyone. In communist countries, that was the norm. Listen to what the establishment media say to foreign sources if you can access them, to access them rather, and to anti-establishment dissidents. Then it was Samizdat, now it's internet conspiracy theorists, but... He says, don't get sucked in by Trojan horses like the infamous Q. Then triangulate and take your best guess. Now, there may be a cost. As Solzhenitsyn said, he who chooses the lie as his principle inevitably chooses violence as his method. And we're seeing things push towards more and more ruthlessness and and it may come to violence in trying to keep the lie going. This is particularly true with the justifications for, for lockdowns. Secondly, 
He says, as stewards of every worldly charge placed on us by God and other people, as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, as neighbors, as students, as workers, as citizens, as patriots, we must prudently care for those to whom we have a duty within the limited power and wisdom allotted to us. Now, that means start with yourselves. Be as self-sufficient as possible. Get involved in your community. That leftist slogan, by the way, is actually a good one. Think globally, act locally. Here's what that looks like, though. Befriend your neighbors. Learn a real skill. Electricity, plumbing, carpentry, farm. He says, don't go to law school, for goodness sake. Get in shape. Eat and sleep right. Have plenty of the essentials, food, fuel, gold, ammunition, and learn to shoot. Limit computer and phone time. Boy, this is a big one. Cultivate healthy personal relationships, real ones, not the virtual ones. Marry young, have kids, especially women. He says, don't get seduced by all that career nonsense. Read old books. I second that one. Cultivate virtue. Go to church. And he says, you know, simply being what used to be considered normal and leading a productive life is becoming the most revolutionary act one can perform. With that in mind, find the strengths to be revolutionaries indeed. Not the black mask-wearing, you know, Antifa-type revolutionaries. Come on, that's a loser's game. In our day and age, revolutionary means planting your own garden, homeschooling your kids, keeping yourself unentangled with all the various ways that Big Gov is trying to help you. He says, you've seen the meme. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Well, he says, take it from the weakling generation that brought them to you. The hard times, they is a coming, but they won't last forever. If you live through them, and some of you will not, we'll see what possibilities, as of now, literally unimaginable, might then exist. But he says you will need to be personally fit to take advantage of them. And you'll also need to be part of some kind of sustainable community of like-minded people. That's pretty radical stuff, huh? And yet it's just common sense. Third, he says, for those of you who are believers, particularly Christians... We must pray without ceasing, firm in faith, that through whatever hardships may lie ahead, even the very hairs of our head are all numbered, and the final triumph of truth is never in doubt. And with that, he wishes the young audience, thank you and good luck. You're going to need it. I like that approach. I mean, he's honest, and look, there, there are some people who will just be like, oh, that's the bad news. The, the masochists are loving it. You know, this confirms we're all going to be miserable. I don't know what the future holds, but it's pretty clear. The consequences of bad decisions that have been made uh, by even generations that came before us, they're, they're culminating. We're going to have to face them. I don't think there is any way around them. I don't think they can be avoided. I don't think they can be bargained or bought off. The can's been kicked down the road about as far as it can. Somebody's going to have to deal with it. And like it or not, that's going to be us. I know, I don't feel like I'm up to the task too, and yet, I'm thinking back here to, to what this, uh, this wonderful speaker is saying. James George Jatris is saying, 
You've got to be willing to act, even if you even if you don't know exactly what you're doing, even if you're not confident in your abilities. And I think it's important. He talks about the the importance of rely on God. Turn to your Creator if if you need that confidence. I know it may not seem like much to to some people, but to me, the reminder of who is really in charge of this universe has a great calming effect. No matter how crazy things are getting, I understand it's a temporary thing, and what really matters is still as rock solid as ever. That's the kind of foundation we've got to be building on for whatever we're building. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you would like to uh, check out my show notes, please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. There's some great resources for wrong thinkers. You can contact me. You can send me a message. By the way, I am getting more and more emails. Was thrilled to uh, hear from a listener in Australia. And man, my heart goes out to this individual. Um, They actually asked me, please do not use my name. So I I won't use this person's name, but um, things are tough. Things are really tough in some places. And that that yearning for freedom and that yearning for good information, sometimes just just to, to get a sense of what's going on, without feeling like, yes, it's all hopeless. It's it's real, and it's out there. I actually had a friend tell me yesterday, he says, you know, I, I regularly unplug from the media. I regularly fast from social media, too. And and I totally understand why he does it. There's times I really wish I could do it, but my what I do um, needs, you know, I, I need to be plugged in at least to, to some degree, but I unplug every chance I get. My friend told me, though, he says, when I come back from my fast, he says, you are one of the first sources I go to just to get a general sense about what's going on. So hopefully I'm not, uh, you know, throwing too much, you know, trivial stuff your way. I try not to get into the, you know what, grinds my gears mode and, you know, just be complaining. I want to share stuff that hopefully gives you insights on here's where we are. You know, here's the direction we're going. Here's what we can do about it. And I love getting feedback because if I do go off in the weeds, someone will always say, hey, back this way. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Because sometimes I forget. I want to take a minute to talk a little bit about anarchy. Now, I know the word anarchy strikes fear in the hearts of people who associate it with bomb-throwing extremists and absolute chaos, the law of the jungle, every man for himself. But, you know, that's not what the word actually means. And I thought you would really, I thought you might find interesting, Isaac Morehouse, who I consider one of the most positive individuals I've ever spoken to. He says it's weird not to want anarchy. Now, now listen to his explanation. He says, anarchy is simply the absence of rulers. It is not chaos, bomb throwing, or communism. The absence of rulers does not mean the absence of leaders or even the absence of governance. It means the absence of a political ruler, a person or institution that claims the moral right to initiate violence. Now, he's pretty blunt here. He says, violence sucks. Nobody wants to resort to it. But there are times when everyone agrees it's morally acceptable to use violence. 
And these times are all in self-defense against someone who has initiated violence. But Isaac Morehouse says initiating violence against peaceful people is wrong. Yet that's all that government is. And he says, I repeat, that is all that it is. The single distinguishing feature that makes government different than any other organization is that it claims the moral right to initiate violence. It can enslave or murder anyone it damn well pleases. You will pay its leaders money and obey their rules or they will kill you, period. There's literally nothing else that defines government as apart from other institutions. I know that makes people mad, by the way, when they hear it described so bluntly, but that's that's a matter of them bumping into a truth that they're just not quite ready to contemplate, much less accept. I mean, think about what kind of conditioning does it take to get, you know, a whole population or the majority of a population to think it's good and it's right that someone in authority tells me what to do, and if I don't, men with guns and badges will come and hurt me. It's good and right that someone in authority takes a portion of every dollar that I earn and claims it as their own and uses it as they see fit. And if I try to deny them that contribution, in air quotes, they will send men with badges and guns to hurt me. I know people have the platitude, well, this is part of the price of civilization. You pay the price for a civilized society. Hey, I got to look at last year of what happens for what we're getting for our tax dollars and, and what a civilized society looks like. And you know those mostly peaceful protests with all the smoke and the rubble and the, the, the broken windows and the looting, the flavel, the, yeah. We're not getting a whole lot. But still, they take that money and men with badges and guns will come and hurt you if you try to prevent them from getting their cut. So he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So Isaac Morehouse says to want government or to not oppose government is to want or not oppose the initiation of violence against peaceful people. Now, he says everyone feels comfortable saying, well, I want a world where nobody dies from cancer. Many people donate to and work towards that world. Nobody wants a world with murder, rape, famine, poverty or infant death. Everybody openly says as much and wants to work toward that world. No one says, I want some rape in the world, or I want a world where some children get murdered sometimes. That would be weird. But he says it's also weird not to want anarchy. It's weird not to desire a world where no one initiates violence against peaceful people. It's weird not to want a world where interactions are voluntary, and violence is only used in self-defense. Now, whether or not it's achievable, You'd think, just like an end to cancer or to poverty, people would at least want to achieve it. Oddly, he says, anarchy is likely far more achievable than most of those other things, as there have been anarchic societies lasting hundreds of years, and he says, to my knowledge, no society has been without sickness, premature death, murder, poverty, etc. Yet hardly anyone wants anarchy. And he says it's due in part to confusion around definitions and meaning. Those who wield government power rely heavily upon people not realizing the stark reality of what government is, organized violence. So they create schools and propaganda and egghead ivory tower discussions and metaphors that abstract away from what government is. Words like anarchy are made synonymous with chaos 
Words like law synonymous with order. This is classic doublespeak. Isaac Morehouse says, So asked if they'd prefer a world where violence was only used defensively versus one where one group of people got to use violence anytime they wanted to force anyone they chose to do whatever they wanted, most people would probably say they prefer the former. Word magic prevents them from seeing that they just said they prefer anarchy, and most would never agree to it. They'd defend the government without realizing the contradiction. But he says it's not only conceptual and linguistic confusion. Isaac Morehouse says, I suspect many people are unwilling to say they want a world without the initiation of violence because they want to reserve the right to have violence initiated on their behalf. Now, nobody wants to admit it in those words. But most people get tired of peaceful persuasion, conflict resolutions, tolerance, competition, individual freedom. They want peace, but damn it if they get sick of hearing people speak a language they don't. They'll advocate sending men with guns to murder those people if they keep peacefully offering to rent from or work for their neighbors. He says people want to protect that little corner of darkness in their hearts. The one that wants to go get the bully with the big stick to beat the crap out of people who won't give their money to their favorite cause or live as they see fit. That's weird and gross. He says we can only control ourselves. We must purge the darkness from our own hearts, the darkness that would use the tools of the state to aid in our personal aims. Those tools are always inferior to peace. The practical results are always worse, and their spiritual corrosion is inescapable. Like I say, Isaac Morehouse is one of the more positive commentators out there, but I also love the fact he just tells it plainly. So, anarchy's not such a bad thing. I know we've been trained since our childhood to view government as kind of a hybrid parent god, and the thought of not being ruled over is, is pretty terrifying to some people. We've allowed ourselves to be convinced that a lack of rules somehow, or lack of a ruler, rather, is the same thing as a lack of rules. But I would just remind you that human nature is remarkably adaptive to spontaneous organization when problems arise. Absence of the state doesn't turn us into the Lord of the Flies, but that's kind of the the attitude that we've been told to hold. I think about the motorcyclist in Logan, Utah, a few years ago, who uh, crashed into a car, was trapped under the car. The car is on fire, and there's a group of people there, and there's a policeman standing there directing traffic and keeping people back. Get back, get back, it's dangerous. But uh, here's this car on the burning car on this poor motorcyclist. And suddenly the crowd, without direction from the officer, in fact, against the officer's direction, swarms the car. There's probably 12, 15 men lift the car off the motorcyclist and someone grabs his legs and pulls him to safety. Yes, he did survive. That That may sound crazy, but you know what? That's an example of what anarchy looks like spontaneous organization we've got to solve this problem the lone authority figure who was on the scene well he finally did join in after he saw that people weren't obeying his commands get back get back if you can get used to living your life without permission i think you'll do well with freedom trouble is a lot of people don't want that this is the brian hyde show 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. A quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, they are located in St. George, Utah, but I'm telling you, if you are buying a home anywhere in the state of Utah, this is the team you need to talk to. Because if you are looking to get a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the stability, and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. And that's important. Timing is everything in the hottest real estate market that uh, most people have ever seen. So get in touch with them today. Call 435-703-4522. There is an email link in my sponsor notes or my sponsor links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That'll put you right in touch with Heather. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, moving on. Is there any kind of therapy for the current madness that we are experiencing and it's not just here in America, but but pretty much worldwide. I know that uh, there's a lot of talk about mental health. And and I don't know, you know, I, I don't think people are being hypochondriacs or whatever the mental health equivalent of a hypochondriac is. Man, I find myself questioning this a lot. And it's, sometimes it's a matter of, it, it, am I accurately seeing and processing what's happening here? I mean, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I may speak with confidence on, on some things, and, and there are some issues that I think I have, have uh, I've, been, I've examined them closely enough for long enough and, you know, defended them and, and argued them that I'm okay with committing to, to the truth of them. I'm still open to new information that might change my mind, but uh, outside of that new information, I'm okay with, with embracing them as truth. But I still find myself wondering, where, where is this going? Am I strong enough to, to be able to face this and continue to be consistent with my principles? I know I'm not alone in this. But I do love it when someone comes up with, a, with a, a good metaphor for what we are going through. Robert Weisberg, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, which, again, I would recommend as one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. A lot of good writers, a lot of good topics. They cover culture, education, family, philosophy, politics, Western civilization. They really do a great job. Well, Robert Weisberg has written a piece called Therapy for Our Current Madness. And he says just flat out, look, it's no secret that we live in crazy times. Yet more is involved than just a bunch of crazy people running wild. If this was just individual mental illness, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, or DSM, would help. But unfortunately, the DSM fails to address today's political madness. And with that deficiency in mind, he says, let me offer an analytical framework that might prove helpful. For instance, today's political insanity might be called compulsive destruction disorder, CCD, or I'm sorry, CDD. A main symptom is the irrepressible urge to undermine Western civilization in general, particularly traditional American society. Now, it's a wide-ranging disorder, disproportionately afflicting those in the academy and exhibited in ideologies such as Marxism and critical race theory. A utopian element, transforming today's allegedly horrible world into a paradise, is present. But CDD sufferers are not harmless daydreamers. 
He says, rather, they are energetic crusaders whose life mission is to undermine what is generally judged a good, though hardly perfect, society. Those suffering from compulsive destruction disorder are radical egalitarians. And I just want to put some skin on that word uh, egalitarian. They want everything, everyone to be equal. They're unable to live with imperfection, ever happy to, to uh, upend lives, even harm millions in pursuit of their fantasies. Now, compulsive destruction disorder, he says, manifests itself in multiple endeavors. The common thread of which is subverting a society of remarkable accomplishment. These crusades include undermining education, eviscerating the military and law enforcement, squandering trillions of taxpayer money on pointless social engineering, and forcefully silencing their critics. CDD sufferers want to eliminate all merit-based tests, such as the SAT, insisting that feelings outshine logic and evidence in uncovering truth, replacing rigorous academic subjects with feel-good courses and dumbing down excellence to certify everyone as equally talented. And then he asks the question, why? Conceivably, their misguided passion simply reflects the do-gooder mentality on steroids, even if this kindness harms the recipient. For example, when we defund the police to help poor people, or maybe when he says these urges might be more rationally self-serving. I mean, after all, eliminating the SAT may help their dumb offspring gain entry to Ivy League schools. But this might also be virtue signaling to provide a cheap congratulatory high and serve as the admission ticket to good society. Robert Weisberg says, let me, however, suggest an alternative. The destructive urges are hardwired rather into their genomes, and they just can't help themselves. There are the gap finders who cannot help but fret over unfair gaps everywhere. Lines are longer at women's women's bathrooms. Black neighborhoods have fewer trees. Dry cleaners charge more for women's blouses than men's shirts. In the meantime, the privileged sniffers are impulsively enraged that men disproportionately win more math prizes and create more high-tech firms. And then don't forget the language manipulators who feel the irrepressible need to distort vocabulary to achieve progress. See, for these people, the SAT does not measure cognitive ability, but is instead an arbitrary barrier to exclude talented minority kids from Yale while prostitutes are sex workers. And then there are the social exorcists unable to resist destroying inanimate objects like statues. I love, by the way, these, these labels that he's come up with. Gap finders, privileged sniffers, language manipulators, social exorcists. I think those things ought to be in the DSM as well. He says, since these hardwired urges cannot be resisted, it's pointless to argue rationally with facts and figures. In light of these irresistible impulses, perhaps we should consider barring those afflicted with chronic CDD from positions of responsibility. Promoting a compulsive gap closer to a four-star general guarantees a weakened military. Let's try that again. Promoting a compulsive gap closer to a four-star general. I think he's talking about Millie, isn't he? Guarantees a weaker, weakened military as he uh, works 24-7 to ensure that SEAL Team 6 looks just like America. Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. That, that just strikes me as... Whew, that's happening. The purple-haired, you know, the non-binary uh, pronoun gang members 
they are definitely being accorded a place in our military. That's a little bit spooky in the sense that, uh, I don't know. I think we, we, we put some pretty important things on the shoulders of our military. You know, they're to defend and to protect. But I think you have to be kind of tethered to reality in order to do that. And a lot of the things that are being embraced right now, they're not even based in reality. Anyway, I digress. Robert Weisberg says, This exclusionary policy is hardly novel. Few people are permitted to hold sensitive jobs if they suffer chronic alcoholism, drug addiction, or comparable liabilities. Maybe compulsive destruction disorder in all its manifestations should be added to the list of job disqualifications. How is it different than prohibiting those afflicted with hypersomnia, the inability to stay awake during the day, from being airline pilots? He says, America's suffering from a plague of craziness. It's time for some serious therapy. Now, I want to, as much as I appreciate what he's saying here, I want to temper what he says with, with a couple of annotations of my own. It isn't about changing other people. The solutions you and I are looking for do not involve getting other people to do what we tell them. And, you know, and it could be something that we're telling them, wake up, be aware. Trust me, as someone who's been trying to help people wake up for a very long time, I don't know that that's necessarily the best route. Just because people will wake up as they are ready to, but they've got to do it on their own terms. If you throw a bucket of cold water in somebody's face and then stand there waiting for them to congratulate you, you're going to be standing there for a long time. I think the most important work we can do is be good people. I know that sounds trite. I know that sounds too simplistic. How could this possibly work? I've just seen it work so many times in real life. A person who is truly good, a person who is, is standing firm on his or her principles and living them, not so much standing on the street corner talking about them and gesturing to the sky as they orate, but actually just living as a good person. You create a kind of gravitational pull around you that you would be wise not to underestimate. And it will influence those people who are ready to open their eyes and ready to look for a more sure path. So let's be that person. This is The Brian Hyde Show.